Lover, if anything, be stronger than mere days. Lover, if anything, be strong. If it matters that strength is your strength, love a weakness. Be anything, to love were a vicious thing. Stronger than you are, heartless rain on these days. Be loved, lover, if anything be stronger than. A poem for myself, The Fool, by Leroy Jones. Welcome to the Composition Podcast, episode 10. First episode in the month of April. Um, I hope you've all been reading, getting your mind right. It's been a lot going on lately, so I hope you've just been trying to learn, trying to move forward, stay focused. Um, That opening poem there, I found that poem on Twitter, just scrolling through, you know, suggested literature tweets. That poem came up. It was actually tweeted by a guy in 2018. But, um, yeah, hold on. Let me get this gentleman's name right quick. It's from Andrew Epstein 3, at Andrew Epstein 3 on Twitter. He tweeted this poem in uh, 2018, but I found it just recently. And it's from Leroy Jones, better known as Amiri Baraka. He says that this poem appeared in Locus Solis Number 3, published in 1962. And I don't know if that's accurate or not. I assume that it is. But um, I found that poem on Twitter, and I think it goes great with my book, um, my book of, of the week. So when I read it, it really touched me for a second. In the opening line, he says, lover, if anything, be stronger than mere days. And I think that's important in regards to the story where every character like pretty much goes through all of these fucked up situations, but it's the love of who they know they are and and the people they have around them that keeps them going throughout all of the turmoil that they face. But we'll definitely get to that later. Um, A little bit more on Amiri Baraka before I go forward. Um, So many of you probably already know his name. He's one of the most famous people from the civil rights era. Um, He was born Everett Leroy Jones on October 7th, 1934 in Newark, New Jersey. And he died January 9th, 2014 in his hometown. He won a scholarship to Rutgers University in 1951 and quickly transferred to Howard University in 1952. He also had quick stints at Columbia University and the New School in New York. In 1954, he joined the United States Air Force as a gunner and he reached the rank of sergeant. His first book of poems was published in 1961. And for me, his most notable work was published in 1963. It's called Blues People, Negro Music in White America. And it's about the development of black music from slavery to contemporary jazz. And, you know, I love music, so I quickly, quickly took to that one. Um, After the assassination of uh, Malcolm X in 1965, that's when he officially changed his name from Leroy Jones to Mary Baraka. And then he moved to Harlem, where he started the Black Arts Repertory slash Theater School, BARTS for short, and it's better known now as the Black Arts Movement. It only stayed open for a year, but it attracted a swell of black creatives, huge black creatives. Uh, And after its closing in that year span, we started to see all of these different black culture and black cultural and black arts theaters being opened up all across the country because of the inspiration that Amiri Baraka started. So huge shout out to him for all of his work and just for his ideas of bringing black arts to the forefront. Um, again, and I think that this poem specifically called a poem for myself, The Fool, is really relative to my book of the week, Black Cake by Charmaine Wilkerson, simply because I feel like this poem is a, a self-established mantra, a reminder to, to always put self-love and, and humility 
over everything. He even says in the in the opening title, a poem for myself, the fool, which is him accepting that he makes his, his he makes his mistakes and not everything is going to be perfect. He's always going to have his issues. He says that with be stronger than mere days. And in the book I read, boy, do those days come tough. And because the characters in the story have such a love, not only for themselves and what they have to sacrifice, but for the people that that they care about, they have to sacrifice and they have to they have to hold secrets like for years and years and years. I'll definitely tell you more about it later, but I just feel like that this poem really holds true in that story where it talks about loving yourself no matter what. So again, shout out to Mary Baraka for this poem. Uh, where do I even begin this week? Uh, well, to end off Women's History Month, we have a black woman nominated for Supreme Court Justice of the United States of America. Her name is Judge Kintanji Brown Jackson. Shout out to her for sure. In the previous month, she had her confirmation hearings where they pretty much put her entire life on display and grilled her previous uh, political choices, her previous court choices, pretty much her entire life. Uh, she was praised by some, like Cory Booker, and she has a pretty good Democratic backing. So uh, it pretty much comes down to a vote now. She just needs a minor majority vote to win. And if she does win, she'll be the first African-American woman as a Supreme Court justice. And that would be fucking absolutely amazing. So we're rooting for her. And I know it's hard for a lot of people to accept that African-Americans just root for other African-Americans, especially in politics, just because they're black. But I'm sorry. When it comes to things that are firsts, it's really hard to not, not support it. Um, but more about her. She was born September 14th, 1970 in Washington, D.C., but was raised in Miami, Florida. She attended Harvard University. That's where her law, uh, law career began. She had a clerkship under Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. Later, from 2013 to 2021, she served as district judge for the United States District Court for the District of Columbia and was the vice chair for the United States Sentencing Commission from 2010 to 2014. So again, huge shout out to her. Hopefully after the vote, she'll be on the Supreme Court justice and it'll just be another win for African-American culture. Hopefully she does right by the country, not just African-Americans, but serves her role well. But until we find out what she's truly like, Hey, shout out to her and we're rooting for her. Um, in other news, the slap heard round the world. Um, a few nights ago at the Oscars, Will Smith smacked the fucking shit. I don't know about the fucking shit, but he smacked the shit out of Chris Rock on live television in front of pretty much the entire world. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Initially, I thought it was fake. Part of me still thinks it's fake. I'm sorry. Like, I just have a little bit of conspiracy theory in me. But let's just say it's not fake. Wow. Um, it's a lot to unpack if it isn't fake. I would like to start first off by fucking giving freaking huge kudos to Chris Rock for being able to keep his cooth and keep his composure after a fucking... Another grown man assaulted him over making a joke. Now, my personal stance is I don't really think he was speaking too much about her condition as opposed to just making a joke about her look. But I can understand, or I do understand now, that there really isn't a separation. Like whenever somebody is going or suffering with a condition or suffering with a look or anything that they hold sensitive to it. And especially if you know about it, it's not really something to attack. Um, a lot of people always tell me, have been telling me that Cat Williams' great quote was, if you can't make a joke without 
offending somebody, then you're not a comedian. So I fully understand that stance where it's, if it's like you have to be offensive, then if you have to punch down, that's the quote that a lot of people like to use. If you have to punch down on groups, then you're not making jokes. And I completely get that, but you know, really touchy subject. I personally wouldn't have been able to do it. Like if a man would have just walked up to me and smacked the shit out of me, I don't know what the fuck I would have did. Um, and it's crazy because as you all saw, if you watched the clip, Will Smith laughed. So it's like, what the fuck? A lot of people took the stance that it was kind of like a nervous laugh or just a laugh that he's accustomed to doing being in, in the public light in the media. And okay, I can see that kind of, and I can get the, 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 the stance of him just laughing at the joke and then looking over at his wife and then understand that she was hurt by it and him immediately being triggered. Now, what I will say is if anybody can go up on stage as a black man and smack the shit out of another person, it's definitely Will Smith. So I'm glad it was him. Anybody else, their career would fucking for sure be over if they would have did that. But it being him, um, I guess we just got to take that. He definitely deserves grace and understanding him being the butt of every fucking joke for the last however long. Um, so prayers for him and his family. I hope he's able to to not only heal through whatever he's going through, but just understand that. I'm pretty sure he understands that. Jokes are just jokes. But, <laughs> man, that shit right there. A lot of people say that that smack was, was for everybody. It was for the whole world. Everybody that's been making him the butt of the joke for the last however many years. And I completely agree with that. Shit was sick. It definitely, the situation definitely overshadowed his whole Oscar win. It overshadowed the entire night, really. So that's unfortunate. But, I mean, I guess the silver lining is to have fucking Denzel Washington and Tyler Perry come comfort you after you just made the fucking biggest blunder in the history of television. That's pretty cool. That's fucking dope. Samuel Jackson seemed to be pretty hype about it. I love Samuel Jackson, as you all know. So that was that was dope to see, I guess. If that was anywhere else, any other award show, that was at like the BET Awards, boy. Just imagine had some shit like that happen at the BET Awards. The rest of the show would have just been completely different. It would have just been jokes on jokes on jokes. So, yeah, wow. Um... Another huge thing going around the NFL, they've decided to adjust their Rooney rule and their overtime rules. Well, the overtime rules for the playoffs, at least. So it's to my understanding now that in overtime, in the playoffs, both teams uh, receive a possession to score. Well, if the first team scores, the other team has a chance to answer and score, then after both teams score, it's sudden death, first team to score wins. Definitely a cool twist to it. I always think it's weird that the NFL enforces rules after it comes out that a team's been cheated and fans are upset about it and like there's this whole debacle. And then the very next offseason they change the rule and because everyone feels like Josh Allen got cheated in the playoffs and uh, when the Chiefs played the Bills and he wasn't able to answer the Chiefs' touchdown on that first drive that, oh, now we have to change the rules. Well, here we have it. The NFL loves to do that. Um, they did it here, and with the Rooney rule, now each NFL team has to have a woman and a minority coach on their, uh, on their coaching roster. Um, I think that's a weird, weird necessary twist, for sure necessary twist, but I don't ever remember hearing about women ever coaching football. So that's pretty cool, I guess, to see that. Um, will that lead to there being a black head coach or a minority head coach or even a woman head coach one day? We will for sure see with this new rule. Now, it says that you have to have a 
minority coach or a woman coach on your staff. It doesn't say for how long and it doesn't say for what positions. So that doesn't really help with every with everyone's gripe. I mean, everyone's issue was there's no black owners, no black head coaches. Not that there's no black defensive coordinators or no black fucking linebacker coaches. Like, there's enough of those, I guess. But progress, right? We have to start somewhere. I always say that. You have to start somewhere. So shout out to, to the NFL for giving us some new twist. Of course, this free agency has been huge. So to add this, we're just looking at a bigger season than it was last year. And last season was fucking ridiculous. So we'll see how it goes. So I want to take a quick pause to say a quick rest in peace to Tracy Braxton. Um, today, March 31st, has been declared Tracy Renee Braxton Surratt Day in Prince George's County. Uh, she's one of the Braxton sisters, huge, famous singers, uh, the entire family, beautiful women. And they've really put on for the entire Prince George's County. So as a native, for us to lose her, it's, it's, a, it's a loss. It's a blow for all of us. Um, so again, rest in peace to her. Prayers up to the entire Braxton family, to her son, and to her husband. Um, definitely check up on the people you care about, and don't be afraid to get checked up on. Cancer is a fucking, a fucking nightmare, and it's taken everyone from us. Me personally, I've been affected by it, so I know all too well. So prayers up to anybody that's dealing with it, going through it, or lost somebody because of it. Um, before I do get into literature, though, I do want to talk a little bit about this uh, coffee bean that I came across today. If you if you've been listening, you know I'm like kind of like a religious coffee drinker. I know that sounds crazy, but uh, today I found, and this isn't an ad, by the way. But where's this bag of beans? Hold on. So today. In Richmond, I found a bag of beans from a company called Blanchard's Coffee Roasting Company out of Richmond, Virginia. They actually have a bag of beans called the Richmond. Um, and I just saw it doing some grocery shopping. You know, I'm always looking for new coffee. I'm actually sipping some of it right now. It's a really, like, really smooth bean, really fucking creamy um, I got it from my French press, and like as soon as I made it, I enjoyed it. I, I like I usually throw some oat milk in my coffee. Didn't even need it. Just sipped it, straight coffee. It's really creamy, really smooth, really light. The aroma was absolutely amazing. Like my room smelled like this cup of coffee for like an hour after. No bullshit. So again, uh, shout out to Blanchard's out of Richmond. Again, this bean is called the Richmond. If you're ever out there or if you if you want to go across their website and order it for yourself and find out, definitely fucking do it. Um, I enjoyed it. I'm enjoying it again right now. And hopefully we'll see how the rest of the beans are like. Definitely can't wait to try some more. Shout out to them. So for sure, let's get into some literature now. Um, again, the book of the week is called Black Cake from Charmaine Wilkerson. It's from Ballantine Books. The book is 382 pages from the beginning up into the author's notes. And the author's notes actually is like a really, really interesting section of the book. This is my first time like ever reading that part of the book. But it really added another layer of life to the entire story. So I can appreciate that. Shout out to Charmaine, Charmaine Wilkerson for that too. Um, but yeah, like I saw the book. I first saw it in my uh, iBooks in my suggested section after reading uh, whatever the last book I read was. Sorry about that. But when I went into the Amazon bookstore, rest in peace again to the fucking Amazon bookstores that are no longer here with us. I'm so fucking hurt by that. But I saw it, really colorful cover. I said, oh, black cake. Huh, I saw that before. 
and I love me some black cake. Definitely not the black cake the book talking about, but anyhow, I decided to start reading it in the bookstore, and that first fucking chapter where it talks about the twins, excuse me, they're not even twins. I don't know why I always, like when I visualize books in my head, for whatever reason, these characters are twins. But um, the brother and sister, when it starts off talking about their situation and the, the turmoil that their relationship is going through, and like from there, the story just picks up from go. And I started getting lost in it. So started reading it, became on my, it came on my reading list. And I really enjoyed it. Um, For this to have been Charmaine Wilkinson's first novel, I can definitely say it's a really creative, fun story. Like every time you think you know where it's going, I promise you, it's gonna go in a completely different direction. Um, Reading it, it was really like watching a movie. I know I say that a lot, but again, this one did it for me. One of the things I really loved about this story is that you're able to see it from many different perspectives. So there's an overall situation that all of the characters are tied to, and the story gives you every single character's perspective tied to the situation. I know that kind of sounds cryptic. I hate doing that, but you know I can't really give the story away without getting to my excerpt first. But yeah, it's almost like a whodunit. Uh, that's kind of like a perfect way to explain the, the creative way the writer connects all of the characters. Now, although it's a family situation, it does involve, the story does involve a murder, which is why every character is affected. Like there's a butterfly effect that just trickles down a generational line and twists everybody's life to a point where, again, going back to my opening poem, people are questioning the love that they have for themselves or the love that they have for the people around them because they have to hold on to these secrets that aren't even theirs. But through love for themselves, for others, they're able to, to continue on, to have purpose, Really deep book, man. Um, let's see, where am I gonna go for an excerpt? There's so many different pockets that I can get into in this book that I enjoy it, where it's like there's a story within a story. So uh, Charmaine Wilkerson specialized in short fiction and finding that out after reading the book, it was kind of like, ah, because each chapter in itself is like a different story and how they all intertwine, it was beautifully done. So again, shout out to Charmaine Wilkerson, fucking five-star book, 10 out of 10, whatever you wanna, whatever scale, this was the one for me. So my excerpt is gonna be coming from page 115, uh, 115 through 120, the chapter is called Black Cake. I just decided to get right to it. Um, this is the standout chapter throughout the entirety of the book, really, because it 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 is the situation, I guess, that causes all this turmoil. But as you continue the story, and especially once you get to the end of the story, you find out that it's a lot more than that meets the eye. And I thought that, wow, was that just like really, really well written. Shout out again to Charmaine Wilkerson. Uh, let's get into it. Page 115 chapter is Black Cake. If you have the book, you know what we're getting into. What happened next had already been set in motion two days before the wedding reception. On that Thursday, Pearl turned up the fire under the heavy-bottomed pot and opened a sack of cane sugar. She sank a measuring spoon deep into the well of brown crystals, releasing the smell of earth and molasses. It was the finest raw sugar produced on the island, but it was about to be wasted. 
along with eight hours of labor to make a wedding cake for what would be a sham of a marriage. Sacrilegious. In keeping with tradition, the bride and groom were meant to save a portion of the rum cake to mark their first anniversary. A few modern couples who married for love and owned electric freezers were now keeping pieces of their cake for longer periods, slicing off a bit to celebrate each passing year. But this marriage, Pearl thought, would not be worthy of such an honor. For Pearl, Covey's wedding day would be a day of mourning and 1965 would be a year of bitter farewells. Ironic. Pearl had known Covey since she was born. When Covey's parents hired her through a friend, she had come to work for them on the North Coast, taking time off only to have her two boys. Hard to believe that before coming here, Pearl had never left the capital city. She had grown up hearing of this area's famous lagoon. Everyone had, but not even the prettiest southern beaches had prepared her for such beauty. That seemingly bottomless pool of water with its shifting colors. The beaches nearby with their aquamarine coves, ringed by thick vegetation. The sands that lit up at night with tiny glowing creatures. Pearl grew to love this part of the island, grew to love a local man, and grew to care for Coventina almost as much as her own children. And Covey's mother, Miss Matilda, as she used to call her in front of other people, had given Pearl something that she hadn't been counting on, a friendship. Pearl didn't blame Matilda for running away from Covey's father. Their home had been filled with regrets. What she couldn't understand was how Matilda could have stayed away from her own child for so long. She had promised to send for Covey. She had left money with Pearl to make the arrangements. When the time comes, Matilda had said. But the time had never come. Six years had passed since Covey's mother had left, and Pearl had not heard from her for the last four. Covey didn't know this, of course. She never told Covey that they had been in contact after her mother's departure, and Pearl had decided that she would never let Covey know. She hated to think that something serious might have happened to Matilda, but it was worse to imagine that Matilda might have, for some reason, changed her mind. Pearl had tried to make up for some of the maternal care that Covey was lacking, but she knew it wasn't the same. She made sure Covey kept herself clean and ate plenty of food, and before going home every afternoon, she would wrap her arms around Covey and give her a tight squeeze, even when the girl had grown taller than Pearl. But this whole wedding business had changed things between them. At 17, Covey was all grown up, turning heads everywhere she went, though she didn't seem to notice. All she, t all she seemed to care about was the Grant boy and Bunny and the swimming, always the swimming. But little man had put a stop to all that. He came by the house almost every afternoon now, his voice all cheerful-like, but eyes like stone. Covey had a habit, when she was feeling low, of slinking into the kitchen, slumping onto the stool, and saying Pearl's name in the way that she had since she was little. Pearl. But as the day of the wedding approached, Pearl watched as Covey slipped away from her. She stopped coming into the kitchen, only spoke when she was spoken to. This wounded Pearl's heart, though she could see why it was happening. Earlier in the week, Covey had walked into the kitchen and found Pearl gathering supplies for the wedding cake. What is this? Covey said when she saw what Pearl was doing. Before Pearl could answer, Covey stalked out of the room, and as quickly as that, their relationship had changed. Pearl understood that Covey felt betrayed by Pearl, by her father, by people who should have been protecting her from such a fate. But how exactly could Pearl have done anything to stop this? Bacon could always soothe what ailed her. 
Pearl dropped spoonfuls of sugar into the pot and breathed in deeply. The scent took her back to hot afternoons of her childhood, to the smell of fresh cane stalks being sliced and stripped, to the sweet juices that slipped into her mouth as she chewed on the cane fiber, to the orange blossom shade of a punciana tree. Pearl had shared this special treat with Covey when she was little, just as she later did with her own two boys. Now Covey wanted Pearl to follow her to her new home, but the groom-to-be was against it. Little man's undisguised hostility toward Pearl made it easier for her to decide on her next move. Right after the wedding, Pearl would leave the employ of Covey's father. She was always getting offers from it from important men's wives, but Pearl preferred to go to one of the resort villas up in the hills, where the wages would be good and the guests would never stay long enough for her to get mixed up in their lives. Only one question remained. How could Pearl help Covey get free of Little Man, that beast? The sugar began to darken and smoke as Pearl stirred. When it was almost black, she took a small pot of boiling water and poured its contents onto the sugar, turning her face away as the mixture sizzled and splattered. She would add the blacking to the batter to darken it, but only after she had whipped the butter, added the eggs, flour, spices, and finally, the mixture of fruits that had been soaking for weeks in dark rum and port. This cake would be a work of art. As Pearl cracked the eggs and beat them into the batter, she wondered if there was a way to poison a portion of the cake without putting Cubby or the wedding guests in danger. She had something she could use, something that would take effect quickly, something that she had shoved into the pocket of her apron on impulse. Pearl opened the jars of marinated fruit and let the alcohol tickle her nostrils. She poured and stirred and scraped and stirred again. By the time she had put the first couple of pans of batter in the oven, she was despondent. She was no longer certain of what to do. Surely, few of the wedding guests would be sorry to see little man Henry go to the devil, but you couldn't attack such a powerful man without courting trouble. Even if Pearl were to come up with a way to poison only little man's piece of cake, there would be an obligatory show of indignation among the citizens and police and the evidence would point straight to Pearl. Pearl pulled the bottle of poison out of her pocket and turned it back and forth, studying the label. No, Pearl had no intention, no intention of ending up in prison. She couldn't do that to her children or to her late husband's memory, and she was no longer convinced that it would resolve Covey's problems. It would not be beyond Little Man's family to force Covey into a marriage with his brother should little man meet a sudden demise. Pearl slipped the bottle back into her pocket. She needed to think. Pearl knew how people saw her. Few people suspected a woman like Pearl of having the means or cunning to take care of certain things. There were advantages to being looked down upon by certain people. It was precisely for this reason that Pearl felt confident that she would find a way to help Covey. This train of thought calmed her nerves. That and a few words of prayer to the Lord to deliver her from this fire. On the morning of the wedding, Pearl topped the cake with a cluster of icing flowers, delicate periwinkles that would dazzle the guests and which would spell out a code that only Cubby could decipher. Pearl had adjusted the coloring to give the flowers a lilac tone. The top tier of the cake, laden with the flowers, was the section that would go home with the bride and groom. Despite her distress, Covey would smile when she saw them. Pearl was sure of it. Covey had never liked Lilac, just like her mother before her. Covey would understand what Pearl was trying to say. Pearl reached into her apron pocket for the small bottle that she'd been carrying around for three days and put it on the counter. She began to spoon more icing from a mixing bowl into the piping bag. Just then she heard a psst and turned to find Bunny looking in from the kitchen doorway. Pearl pushed the bottle behind the bowl and waved at Bunny to come in. 
Well, look at you, Pearl said. Bunny spun around to show the pale swirl of the dress that she'd put on for Covey's wedding. She tipped her feet from side to side. Her shoes had been dyed to match. Then Bunny's smile appeared. She walked over to Pearl, leaned against the kitchen counter, and hung her head. I know, Bunny, I know, Pearl said. She jutted her chin out toward the cake. But look! It's lovely, Pearl, Bunny said, sounding on the verge of tears. Then she twisted up her face. But the flowers, they're lilac colored. Yes, they are, Pearl said, nodding proudly. But Covey hates that color. Yes, she does, Pearl said. She put her hands on her hips and waited for Bunny to make the connection. Finally, Bunny smiled and nodded slowly. She straightened up and reached into the mixing bowl, swiping a bit of icing from the side with her finger. Bunny licked at the icing, then reached toward the bowl again. No, go on now, Pearl said. I still have to finish up. I'll see you there. All right, later, Bunny said, wiping her hands on a dish rag. Walk good, Pearl said, as she crouched down and reached under the counter for more confectioner sugar. When she stood up again, Bunny was already crossing the next room. On the afternoon of the wedding, the black cake was wheeled into the reception hall under a veil of white lace. There was the traditional moment of silence as four attendees lifted the veil. The guests cheered and applauded Pearl's latest creation, but Covey just stood there, staring at the cake, her face blank. It was as if the girl wasn't even in the room. It took her a few minutes before her face began to change. First, she looked confused, just as Bunny had. She looked up at Pearl and back at the cake, and then her face softened. Finally, Covey understood what she was looking at. It was small consolation, but it was something. No one was more shocked than Pearl by the suddenness of what transpired soon after. At about four o'clock that afternoon, Clarence Little Man Henry, aged 38, ruthless moneylender and occasional murderer, stood up from the table where he and his new bride, Coventina Dolphin Lynn Cook, nearly 18, had been finishing their plates of rum cake, stumbled, backward over, stumbled backwards over his chair, and dropped dead on the white tile floor. Pearl hurried across the room trying to get to Covey, but when she reached the other side, Covey was gone. All right, that is the end of the chapter. So as you can see from that chapter alone, it's a very action-packed book. A lot goes on. Um. I'm pretty sure you would ask yourself what has to happen for a guy to be murdered at his own wedding. But as the book tells you, Cupentina doesn't want to marry this guy. Cupentina is pretty much the main character. The book, like I said, goes into specific detail about everyone's life in the book. But everything that happens has her as the centerpiece, I guess you can say. So... As a kid, her mother ups and leaves the island due to reasons that the book tells you. You just have to go read why. And her father is forcing her into this marriage for reasons you'll have to read the book to find out why. And it just seems like everybody in her life is not willing to make the necessary sacrifice to show her the love that she thought she was receiving. So for her... Again, she has to ask herself, do I love myself more than the circumstance that I'm in? Do I love myself enough to free myself from what I'm going through? Or on the other hand, do I love the people around me enough to deal with the circumstances that they're putting me in? And with her father, she was willing, like not necessarily willing to deal with it, but she loves her father and she figured her father would find out some way to get her out of this circumstance. So she trusted him with that. She she loved him enough to believe that although 
she's putting him, he's putting her in a fucked up situation. He's going to figure it out. And he never does. So she has to make the decision to love herself more than the circumstance. And she flees the island herself. Um, even at the end of the book, like I said, how it comes back to this chapter and adds another twist to it, I thought was really dope. It's really masterful writing how she would drop little breadcrumbs in each chapter as to the next the next situation or the next secret to be revealed. Um, definitely, definitely, definitely dope book. Me personally, I kind of feel like I relate with the character Byron. So in the book, there are two, two characters, Byron and Benedetta, that I mentioned earlier. And they are, never mind, I'll just let you find out when you read it. I just want to highlight again how I feel like the writer really drives home the importance of love or the duality of love. What are you willing to, 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 to take? to prove that you love somebody or what secrets are you willing to keep to prove that you love somebody and I feel like that even goes back to that Will Smith smack he loves his wife so much that he felt like that was the appropriate time to address the disrespect he was willing to sacrifice his own reputation in front of pretty much the world in order to get immediate recourse for that disrespect and sometimes you just have to be willing to live with the decision or with the consequences and the story Covey also known as Eleanor eventually had to really be able to live with the consequences of other people's actions now that is a whole different level of strength that me personally I haven't been able to reach and I feel like women over men have that ability that strength to to be able to deal with to handle to forgive other people's decisions I feel like there are three specific things that women deal with better than men and it's laid out all throughout this book like I feel like if I was in this situation in these situations or even if the characters in the book themselves the men characters were in these situations instead of the women they wouldn't have really had the same decisions or been able to love other people in the same way the last thing I want to highlight about the book is the many realistic nuances that Charmaine is able to include into her novel so for example um, although the island that this book pretty much takes place on isn't directly mentioned in the book it just says that it's a Caribbean island it alludes to really real nuances that if you're privy to it just from your own life experiences when reading it you're like oh you're able to understand what it is and then to have her double back and then explain in the author's notes I thought was really cool so for example in the one of the chapters it speaks about this huge uh, Asian population in or excuse me on this Caribbean island and just from knowledge around knowledge from being around Jamaicans I was able to learn that um, there's a huge Chinese uh, population in Jamaica so although it doesn't directly say that in the book I was able to gather that and then she like I said she doubles back and says that in the author's notes so to have that confirmation was pretty cool um, where it talks about the exact origin of sugar in the book or where one of the characters starts to mention the exact origin of sugar that was one of the things I was able to learn in school so for the characters to have that type of debate and to see where they stand on it and to have it be some, somewhere close to where I actually have a view in real life, I thought was really, really dope. It definitely gives a huge realistic effect to all of the characters, her, uh, her involvement of real life information and real life occurrences that took the book to a whole new level. So for sure, again, shout out to Charmaine Wilkerson. Go get this book, Black Cake. 
um, I could just continue on and on with it. Oh, actually, one last thing that I have to highlight. Thank you, Charmaine Wilkerson, for not leaving any plot holes. Sometimes when I get really, really, really into enjoying a story, there are certain directions that the story would go in, and then it would immediately jump to another thing. And although it's still in context of the story, you're still left wondering, well, what happened if? So I guess it's open to your imaginative interpretation. Cool. But in this book, she really does complete all of the open-ended plot holes that she leaves. At earlier points in the book, she doubles back and seals up all of the, all of the fucking holes. I really can appreciate that about the book, too. So, yeah, I guess that's going to be it. Um, any more information you want to find out, you can get on her Instagram, her uh, Twitter. You'll find the fucking re reviews for this book. On my website, Dermaine.com, CompositionBookClub.com. Um, let me get you her fucking info right quick. So her website is going to be CharmsPen, that's C-H-A-R-M-S-P-E-N.com. And her Twitter and Instagram are both going to be CharmsPen, same spelling, CharmsPen1. So definitely go follow her, go get this book, go read this book, share the book. Uh, find the review and anything else that I might have mentioned about the book on my website at Dermaine.com, CompositionBookClub.com. Um, let me know what you think about the book uh, at CompositionBC on Instagram and Twitter or directly on my page at underscore Dermaine or at Dermaine underscore one or the other. I, I don't really remember. I'm trying to get better at social media postings. Like I really suck at that shit. I really do try to like completely immerse myself in other shit, but I'm starting. I'm I'm learning, y'all. I'm getting better at it. <clears throat> so yeah, music spotlight this week comes from a good friend of mine. Goes by the name Bet She Wills. Go follow him, go follow him on Instagram right now at B E T S H E W I L L Z. Again, that is Bet She Wills. Um. I went to high school with this guy. Thanks to him, I had confirmation that I like I really was great at this rap shit. In high school, he started a group and was part of a group called Hip Society. Um, if you went to Flowers High School in PG, then you're well aware from that era like how epic that shit was. And the many people that came from that era. Like If you know, you know. And um, this was one of the key players in that whole thing. So shout out to my boy, Willie, uh, from Prince George's County. One of the most consistent artists I know ever since I met him. Like, he's literally been putting out music consistently since then. And that was like 2011, 2012. Yeah, huge shout out again to him. Go follow him at Bet She Wills. A few of his projects, Peace of Mind, Murder She Wrote. Yours truly, Black Heart, Off the Leash, fucking Mental NS 1 and 2, Off the Leash 2. Go check my boy out, all this shit is fire, and he has so many different fucking styles, so many different flows that, yeah, I definitely wanna, I'm definitely honored to highlight him on this episode. The song that I'm gonna play for you is called Up, featuring Lambo to God, so yeah, without further ado, just going to go ahead and get into that right quick. But my book for next week is called, go get it right now. It is called Clotel or The President's Daughter by William Wills Brown. You might have like heard me mention that a few episodes ago. And that's what we're going to be doing for next week. I don't even want to tell you what it's about. We'll just discuss it next week. Read with me. Go get the book, and you'll find out what it's about when you read it. Again, it's called Clotel, or The President's Daughter, by William Wells Brown. Again, this has been the Composition Podcast, Episode 10. Keep reading. Keep learning. Let's get into this song. You feel me? I'm out.
be Percocet and now I'm up, yeah. All my niggas winning, all my men be catching dubs, ayy. I be smoking pressure, I got Zaza in my lungs, ayy. Double cut my styrofoam, cause I like sipping mud. I bring bread with all my niggas, let these hoes reach for the crumbs, ayy, ayy. I'm off a Percocet, she gone off a Molly, uh. And she run like a Harley, uh. And I'm going off a tan, uh. And my bitch, she a dime, I'm fucking it up when I don't got a rhyme. These cameras on me, so you know I'm a shine. Uh, I'm talking money, if you're not, then you're wasting my time. Uh, it's all the packs, so divine. Three game blunt smoking out of my mind. We got these bad bitches throwing up, cause they can't take a 30. Step up in the yard, now I'm fly like a birdie. Everyday living, I gotta protect. Everyday living, I need me a check. And I wasn't that bitch up to getting that neck. And I'm popping these perks, got me itching my chest. I got drugs, ayy. Told her I got drugs, ayy. I got drugs, ayy. She wanna take my drugs, ayy. I got drugs, ayy. Just, ay, I just popped up, I'll be Percocet and now I'm 